Nothing in this episode is financial advice. Yes. None of this views are paraphrased. They're my own. Um, so do your own research. Hey folks, this is Anatoly, and you're listening to the Solana Podcast. And today I have Santiago from Parify with me as a guest. Um, awesome to have you. Hey, Tolly. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I'd love to kind of hear your story, how you got into crypto, and like what Parify as a, a fund is all about. Yeah, definitely. So um, I got interested in, in crypto in 2012. I was at JP Morgan at the time, and I read the headline, right? Magical internet money. And it was uh, hard to overlook. Um, <laughs> Really, for me, it was I studied game theory, and as I was reading the Nakamoto consensus, it became I just said like, "Holy shit, this is a new chapter in game theory." Like you just solved like what could be the Byzantium standard problem, and that can just allow you to reach consensus without trusting a counterparty. And it coincided with like me doing all these deals at J.P. Morgan and seeing how like the bane of my existence was like digging through not very transparent information and seeing like how a simple wire transfer after months of work could totally derail like. A ten billion dollar acquisition, and it was just like somewhat frustrating, like juxtaposing what I was seeing in Bitcoin and what I was seeing at JP Morgan, which was a lot of friction. And I said, "Well, if this has a remote possibility of working, then there's something interesting." And so over the years, like I've after JP Morgan, I was at a CHVU Capital, which is a growth equity fund. We were investing in open source software and fintech. And that's where Ethereum got off the ground. And, you know, I, I, I didn't candidly know if, if Ethereum is going to be like powering DeFi. You know, I, I like fintech. I think it's one of the areas where like the internet, like finance hasn't caught up to the internet. This, this is sort of the, the idea that I keep coming back to. But open source communities do really interesting things. And Ethereum and certainly Solana and some communities are really powerful. And the compounding effects of that become really interesting. But of course, like traditional funds will never touch crypto. They still are in this state of the world where they're they're not touching it. And so at some point, much like you probably just realized I need to do this full time because A, the space moves so quickly. And so the Parify was started in 2018 with this singular focus of we think that, or I think that, you know, DeFi is a killer use case and it's going to be really transforming the rails of finance. That's really cool. The The parallel with me was that um, I kind of loved open source software. This was me as like a 90s kid learning computer science and seeing like Linux being built. And then the whole thing with SEO, like lawsuit against like the bad guys coming in to try to take it away. But there was no way to like make a f- investable business out of it. Like outside of like a couple really weird examples like Red Hat, which was just there super early. And then, you know, MongoDB maybe is like another one. But I always felt that like trying to give your code away for free and then trying to like twist the arm of somebody's arm backwards to pay you a license deal for like support was like always such a bad, like bad environment. Like it felt like kind of like scammy, (laughs) but like crypto, right. Despite of of all the scams happening, I think is like a more honest way to build open source software. Mm -hmm. Here's a community, here's a token that means something for that community. Right. And being part of it, owning that token is a part of that community and part of the development process. Mm -hmm. You're totally right. It, it just seems way more transparent. Yeah. I mean, I remember because we were investing in open source software at SageView and, and, and so many VCs like missed the boat because like, how do you monetize something that is inherently free or forkable or, or copied by anyone? Yeah. Uh, and then Red Hat came along, right? And then IBM, I think it was IBM that acquired it. Yeah. And everyone was like, oh, oh, wow. And then Mongo. And so we, we were investing in open source. And to your point, I always felt open source is very powerful, but you know, look at Linux, very few people actually, you didn't monetize Linux. Like not a lot of people like, yeah. but really this, 
crypto is open source on steroids because it solves a lot of the issues of monetizing and sustaining open source communities. So yeah, I totally agree with what you said. Yeah, the it's an advantage to be open source, right? We have to give our software away. We have to grow our like ecosystem, our like knowledge base. Like every you know engineering brain that understands Solana, to you know, is value added to the network. That that's like mm-hmm. the the crazy part. Um, you guys typically don't invest at the infra layer, which I thought was interesting. And recently, I, I was talking to Andre at uh, one of the clubhouses. I think that was even hosted by you, where he said that he doesn't consider he considers himself like a layer three developer. That he doesn't even worry about protocols. He mm-hmm. puts stuff together into something that's consumer facing. Do you guys see that? Like, like in my mind, I, I kind of agree with both of your theses that value creation actually occurs at that like last mile, mm-hmm. where you actually get to talk to people, right? That's uh, <laughs> and like figure out their problems. What what is your like thesis behind this, and like why why did you guys make that choice? Well, I mean, at a personal level, I'll tell you, I I I think that like value will accrue at different parts of the stack. I, I think we're early that we just don't know, right? But but essentially, like, I guess in the traditional Web two world, you have all the layers of the internet, right? HTTPS, you know, it's like none of that accrued value. And then you had this very tiny sliver of like the user aggregation layer that accrued value. Like this is Facebook, Snapchat, Google, Netflix, Salesforce. But I think with tokens, like, you know, you expand that and you say, well, you actually can capture value across multiple layers of the stack. The question then becomes on a relative basis, where does value accrue the most? But that's not to say the value can't accrue at layer ones. I mean, I think you have some very strong proof points that that's the case, like with Ethereum, with Solana, with Bitcoin. And look, I guess none of this is investment advice, right? Just full disclosure, but because we're going to start talking about these things. But generally speaking, like I do think that like value can accrue. It really depends on the case by case of what is the monetary policy, what is the token structure of these networks. Um, and I'm convinced that like there could be really good products that have a terrible token structure and just don't accrue value. And that can be true for a layer one, it could be true for a layer three, it could be true for a layer two. So it really kind of, I think, requires you to look deeply into the actual monetary policy token structure of these networks. But, uh, you know, as it relates to your, like, your second part of your question, it's just our background. Like my background's in finance, like I, I gravitate towards DeFi. And so, you know, I, I don't pretend to do like everything. I guess there are certain folks in the space that just approach this as a generalized way of investing. And, and that could work well, um, we just like to be more narrow in, in the things that we understand. We think we understand better, or I think I understand better. Got it. Like, so I, you know, to backtrack a little bit, I, I think the value does accrue at the infra layer, but it's more like, you know, w- when you're talking about internet and protocols, Cisco is a $200 billion company, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, you know, they're able to get value out of internet protocol level. And Microsoft is like, you know, a trillion dollar operating systems company. And to me, it always seemed like the the lower layers are less risky and get commoditized, but also really hard to compete with because the technology quickly becomes less um, general, like less mathematical and more engineered. Mm -hmm. You know, to build like a 5G modem that can compare with Qualcomm you don't just need to understand radio. You have to have like 10,000 people have like micro-optimized every nuance of it, right? Like, which is a ton of work, right? Um, yeah, I know, look, from from my perspective, I was, we were just talking about this before the, we started this, but, you know, I was part of the Solana Hackathon. And to me, that was really interesting because um, it forces me to follow the developers and, and seeing the quality of developers, hearing from them, 
look, the tooling has been much improved. There's every incremental protocol that joins this network is enhancing, right? You have. And so as more of these hackathons continue, then I think it just becomes like, it really kickstarts this flywheel uh, of this network in, in a very interesting way, right? And, and look, you saw it in, in Ethereum, like, you know, people tend to forget this, but Ethereum for a long time struggled with product market fit. You know, you're trying to boil the ocean. Like, I, I understand that it's a general consensus, but what do you do with that, yeah. right? <laughs> Bitcoin is very singularly focused on yep. one particular thing and it doesn't pretend to do other, I mean, you know what I mean? Like Bitcoin serves a very clear purpose. And Ethereum, in the absence of Maker, for instance, like you really needed to have that core backbone yep. to say, okay, I have a stable coin and then I can build all the different money Legos. And so for me, it's interesting because look, I'm, I'm, I, I, I definitely agree with you that like the, you know, and, and by the way, TBD on the value accrual for ETH in the absence of EIP 1559, because you can have a network that, that has a ton of demand, but does that value accrue to the token? Unclear, right? And so, you know, these are the things that we think about a lot. I mean, I, I think it's quite early still. There's a lot of experimentation at the layer ones, but we're looking at all of them, I guess. Yeah. Do you think like, yeah, what is a universal computer for, right? This is like a really kind of abstract question. And like when people tell me it's for everything, it's really hard to hard to reason with that. Do you think that the finance applications right now are almost like the search engines of the 90s, where it's obvious that these are like the things with product market fit? Like these are gonna, going to be sticky no matter what happens in the future. Oh yeah, I mean, it's a great question because I I, I don't know if this is SGs or Google or or, or you know AOL and or Facebook or, or like MySpace. Uh, but where I take stock is you know there, there's a lot of usage, which is very different than 2017. Like there are a lot of folks in in the the use cases that you're serving these these users is is strong, right? And you're seeing it on chain. Like you can verify the traction, you can verify the level of activity. And in many cases, like it's been remarkable to see the growth of like stablecoin issuance, for instance, or a number of developers entering the space. And, and so to me, that's most interesting of, of what's going on in, in these networks. But yeah, it, it's unclear. Like, uh, I guess from a where are we in, is this like 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s? I don't know if you have a view. Uh, it feels like we're very early. It feels, it still feels very early because there's a lot of like excitement and experimentation, but there's not, there's not enough standards. I think there's a lot of design space and opportunities. Interesting how different L1s will connect and and value will, you know, trans be transported between these protocols. I've heard you say before, which I I think it's a it's a very interesting kind of observation, which is, you know, when you do like um, I guess there's two ways of innovating, right? One is like a step function improvement, and I think like if you're an existing protocol, like you you sort of like make improvements and you go, but then it could it could take another protocol to do like a step function improvement which really rattles in many ways, like what exists. And I guess if you look back at the internet, there, there were instances where you had this sort of leapfrog improvement and, and it just transformed a lot of the things that were going on, like software as a service versus the license model. Like that was like a breakthrough that, and so, yeah, anyways, I've heard you say that. I think it's a really interesting observation and something to, that I always think about because I'm not prepared to tell you if we found like the killer, the, the best model, the best design. Be behind every step function is like, you know, five years of people grinding at that. <laughs> that, that was like so obvious to me during the feature phone to smartphone switch. It literally happened in one year, but you know, my team like building brew, we, we were grinding at that for like five years and then Apple just kind of dropped this <laughs> magical device. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because I, when the iPad came out, I was like, I don't know if I need this. It just feels like a bigger smartphone. And then, yeah. 
it just transformed my consumer behavior in a, in a very meaningful way. You know, Nokia sort of missed the boat on smartphones. Google, uh, sorry, Microsoft missed the boat as well on smartphones. And so th- this is a very both interesting and, and challenging problem of open source, which is the compounding rate of innovation is much, much faster because everything is open source. And so, you know, the, everyone's sort of improving and forking. And look, with the internet, like then the dissemination of information, like I think the, the innovator's dilemma is much, much, it can, can pronounce itself like faster, right? Whereas the turnover of the S&P 500 over the last like 100 years has been ra- radical, right? I mean, no one imagined like 20, 30 years ago that like most of the composition of the S&P would have been like technology companies. Like no, very few people like believe that. The question today is, hey, do you envision a world where most of the activity in the traditional Web2 world is going to move over to blockchains? And if so, where? We're still in that phase where most people don't believe it. I think the crazy ones in, in, a, in a very small space of this world believe it. Uh, but it's going to take time to do that, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think um, I think what is we're lacking still is founders that are um, more product-centric, less chain-centric. And there's a couple of those, like Renil from Audius is like my favorite example of this. He doesn't care about the layer one. Like <laughs> he will use whichever one he won't like will serve as his like product vision better. And he's got the singular thing about music that he believes in that's bigger than like any anything else yeah. to him. Um, there's very few of those folks that are like that, that have that much conviction and care less about like ETH1 or Ethereum versus Solana, right? It's more about like getting that thing yeah. done. Yeah, it's funny because like, you know, I'm convinced like very few people um, understand how the internet works. Very few people can draw a bicycle and tell you exactly how the components work, <laughs> but they all use it, you know what I mean? And so like, yeah. you're right. I mean, ultimately I think good product wins. Uh, you look at the VHS versus Betamax conundrum, right? One was a better technology, the other one was just better marketed. I believe that like good technology with, with good product mindset always will win. But at the same time, like consumers don't necessarily care. Will they really appreciate decentralization and censorship resistance and and minimize counterparty risk? Probably not. Like at scale, probably a very small subset will will care. But I'll tell you what they will care about is like, hey, can I earn 8% of my savings? When your traditional bank like JP Morgan, and I was like think JP Morgan because that's where I work, gives you effectively negative real interest rates. And I think we're very close to that tipping point where, you know, you already see Circle offering this rates, BlockFi's of the world, like venture and give like, hey, you can actually earn a order of magnitude on your savings. Crypto has always been a retail phenomenon, I think, up until now. And that's fine. I think ultimately the reason why the, the, the large institutions like BlackRock and JP Morgan have come around to offering, you know, even like Bank of America, I think, or, or Morgan Stanley are now offering like direct exposure to crypto investment products to their customers. I don't think it was someone in their risk committee that woke up one day or their board meeting that said, hey guys, we need to do Bitcoin. No, it was, I think if we don't do this, we will lose our customers. And that's super powerful, I think, because retail would really push that agenda and really make, I think, institutions come around to to the opportunity, at least in, in DeFi and offering financial products that, you know, provide more value, right? And I think to your point, like, I think good technology gets adopted if it fulfills like three core properties of like, it's faster, it's better and cheaper. It's sort of a 10x improvement because most people are very, very resistant. When it comes to money, like the stickiness, like how many people actually change their bank account? The retention of these, like once you open your bank account when you're 14 or 15, your parents open your bank account at Wells Fargo, you're probably going to be a Wells Fargo customer for life, yeah. unless unless there's a material shakeout. Uh, but I do think that in this, in this macro backdrop of record low rates, 
DeFi becomes extremely interesting for people. Yeah. And where that actually goes, which which protocol is it? Ethereum, Solana, Polkadot, Cosmos? Folks might not even care. And there's a version of this world where it gets routed to the most efficient place. Yeah, I, I think if we're the infra level folk, like we don't get to talk to the consumer. So I, I think that that story will play out similar to like infra and in, in like in every everywhere, right? Like eventually it becomes commoditized, but the best, you know, you still have a ton of competition there. It's, you know, TSMC versus Intel, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> is, is a pretty obvious uh, competitive story there. Yeah. Do you see like these, uh, like the interest rate savings application as a breakout app that, that could actually go mainstream? Yeah, you know, are rates sustainable? Um, you know, like 10,000% APY is absolutely not, right? Um, will they continue to persist to a level that is sufficiently interesting based on the level of risk that one is taking? Yes, I think so. You know, you don't necessarily need to have 20% APYs, uh, 50% APYs. You need to have four or five. And I think the flow would be something like as follows, right? You're in your bank account, click of a button, you lock your your savings for three or six months. That allows the bank on the back end to either ping someone like Genesis or some some like crypto native or have their own desk, go on chain, deposit in, in, a, in a money market protocol, earn some interest, and then maybe as part of that entire flow, wrap it with insurance like Nexus. And then so it's like FDIC insured for mimicking, like for the uninitiated in the US, like FDIC just means like you're protected up to a certain amount in your principal. And so I think that flow resonates with me where it's possible. I think I think uh, Circle is already offering customers eight and a half to 10%, depending on like how much time they're, they're willing to lock their cash for three or six months. Yeah. Along with stable coins, I think these two are like the Trojan horse of this industry. You know, like, I guess the internet really took off and you probably know this better than, than me, like with email. I think email made the internet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was like the thing that justified like having a computer at home and then justified CapEx and cellular towers to have flip phones and then smartphones. And, you know, it, but it required email because pre-email, everyone's like, yeah, it's fun. You know, there's, there's pictures of cats in the internet. I guess we now have crypto cats. And so like, it's an interesting like parallel <laughs> um, or, or, or corgis or some of these, you know, pixelated art. Yeah. Um, but stable coins, and also at this interesting intersection of COVID, where digitization becomes much more important. And, and you saw it in Asia for the last 20, like for the last 15 years, like Asia totally has leapfrogged the US and Western countries as it relates to the fintech experience. The relationship folks in Korea and Japan, particularly like China, Vietnam, Indonesia, is much, much different than in the US. You know what I mean? Like people don't have any semblance of what a, of a retail branch is. They use everything is like vertically integrated in one app. They do everything. And you look at that and you say, you're left wondering, well, we, we're going in that direction. The problem is most people in the US, and this is not critical, but they, they don't appreciate how broken finance is the minute you start doing it internationally, the minute you start crossing borders. This is why London is a fintech hub, because by default, you need to build products that, that can like you know address uh, some of these challenges. That this financial system at a global level is, like, is a patchwork of stuff that doesn't communicate very well. But DeFi is that, right? And so naturally, I think, yeah, more and more people are, and certainly younger generations are much, much more inclined and will be to think of once you get a, a stable coin, whether it be Libra's DM or a central bank digital currency or the digital dollar or just like something like DAI, it opens your imagination on what else can I do with this? Because people hate sitting on cash. And so once you do that, you're like, okay, yep. I can invest. I want to invest. I want to lend. I want to earn interest. I want to do a million things. From that. And so I think that's where I think it will stable coins are really i think the email moment of this industry yeah i i, I like think the 
the frightening thing is the the global scale of it is that you can rapidly like get absurd amounts of I mean to me five billion TVL and Ave is absurd, but I'm sure to JP Morgan they're oh, like, exactly. should we be paying attention to this yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Th there's no there's no reason why they can't go to five hundred. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean I would characterize DeFi last year as a very early beta experiment, trial run of what could happen. And I think we're still in that beta phase. Uh, there's still a lot of risks. There's still a lot of hacks and there needs to be better rigidity, Lindy standards. But yeah, you know, DeFi is a speck in the dust that no one has seen, no one. Now, of course you have like 50 billion of TVL in the aggregate, at least in Ethereum alone, you start tacking on Solana and, and, and it becomes interesting. You know, as soon as you hit 10 billion, 50 billion, some banks are getting, it's like, okay, maybe there's something here for us to do. But my estimation is like, banks probably are the most incentivized to adopt this because they're they're hurting from the only departments that keep growing in banks is back office compliance administrative functions which if you think about it are very much simplified through blockchain like you know like these things like you can have a very clean record there's no real reason why you wouldn't be able to underwrite a mortgage uh, on chain if you're them right in a kyc pool of liquidity you know your counterparty, you know who's borrowing, you know the provenance of funds, it's all very transparent. And I guess going back to why technology gets adopted, like there will come a time, like you, you certainly have like, I think the pressure from customers that say, hey guys, we want to buy Bitcoin, we want to invest in crypto, offer me this product or I'll go elsewhere. So that's one competitive pressure, like not to get too much Porter five forces here, but the other one is like, whenever technology focuses on eliminating fat, you know, eliminating a cost driver and optimizing that because their margin is declining, right? And when you have some like this that can, you know, give them an order of magnitude, like ability to underwrite more mortgages on chain, you know what I mean? That frees up so much more capacity. Then it's just like a double whammy. And like, uh, you know, I, I totally agree with you. Like I, I, I'll say it again. Like I, I think DeFi to your point around like just core backbone, I think DeFi will become like the operating standard in finance for a lot of these functions. Whether the consumer understands how their mortgage is being underwritten, maybe not. For them, it just might be like, I get an answer in minutes. I can compare my rate. I don't need to necessarily provide all this information over and over again. And the rate's more competitive. And on the back end for JP Morgan or Wells Fargo, they might just be able to underwrite order magnitude more mortgages on chain. Well, do you think there could be a world where we don't have those them at all? Like there is like me as a human directly getting a mortgage from a million people mm. and Chicago market makers borrowing from that pool and trading <laughs> like directly, right? Like all in one state machine and one universal computer. Yeah. <laughs> I guess like thinking probabilistically, maybe, <laughs> you know, well, essentially that, that's what a liquidity provider and some like Sushi or Uni is doing, right? You allow someone, anyone, to be a market maker and earn fees on their on their on their capital base. So I do certainly think that some like flash loans, for instance, is allowing someone to to do arbitrage opportunities without requiring a massive balance sheet. I mean, that's just like as meritocratic as it gets, right? You don't need to have an ISTA license. You don't need to have like these arbitrary like things that only large players would be able to do. Now the smartest guys in the room might be anonymous frogs on Twitter that just are really smart or really good developers and just understand how these things work. On another spectrum, I always think that like user aggregators will have a place in this in this industry because they abstract away the complexity for people 
they provide value added services in the same way that like open source monetize like Mongo or Red Hat, like providing value added services is the way that you kind of monetize open source. And, and I think uh, is, is Aave or, or like or, or Compound or some of these protocols like the next JP Morgan? Maybe. maybe uh will some banks really uh take a hit yes i think so i think people banks will incrementally resist this new technology and new way of operating will be left behind they always do do you fear like a backlash from like regulators that this is going to move too fast for them like this world is like it's going to be hard to do kyc and Five billion people, right, or seven—you know—a billion people participating in something like this. If there's no middleman, right, this is where like the government typically tries to stick its uh, like checks in. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, at a very primitive level, the fir- when I first discovered Bitcoin, I said, "Hmm, well, this could disintermediate money and state, and that might not go down as smoothly as one might think." The optimist in me says, "And out to regulators is a smart contract cannot be manipulated." in the same way that order books or, or centralized parties can. And so from that perspective, everyone is treated equally when you're interacting with a smart contract. It can be hacked for sure. There's risk on, on, on the code. But the smart contract, the programmability of money is the most fascinating thing that I that I think benefits consumers. The amount of consumers like surplus that will be created in this industry is massive because there's more transparency. There's more competition. There's more consumer choice. And what we need to focus on is, I think, Consumer protection. You know, not everyone should be able to use some of these instruments, uh, like like derivatives or or, or be super levered. I, th- I think we need, as an industry, and I think you know, this is something that I, I am very focused on is self policing and, and and adopting good front ends and adopting good standards, like whitelisting, having a reputation layer where similar to like the accreditation rule is very very bare bones. It's so arbitrary that it's like, how is it that like why 200K or I forget the rule, like why a million and why does that make you a sophisticated investor? Well, I think we can do much, much better than that, right? Because data blockchains are data rich. They have an entire, your wallet address has an entire history and snapshots of, of your level of sophistication. And I would argue that you can create a, and construct a really interesting credit profile and get a really good feeling of what that person and the level of sophistication of said wallet or the person who's behind that wallet. And then you say, okay, that's your FICO score, right? Essentially. And then that will determine which protocols you can actually unlock, you know, and, and which features you can actually get access to. There's a really interesting protocol called Rabbit Hole, which is uh, started by one of the guys who is a dapper. So really, really like consumer centric. And that's the whole thing. Like your your wallet is your resume and that allows you to, you go through these quests similar to like earn.com and you need to like get badges to then like be like, hey, like this is actually a person that is very sophisticated. He can... Therefore, if, if X, then Y. So yeah, like long-winded, I don't know. I think there will be backlash. Yes, there will always be regulatory concerns. I think where I'm most focused on is I think for the most part, I think the, the, the smart regulators understand that this is probably as powerful as the internet and you want to be pro-innovation. There's a lot of really smart people that continue to like enter the space. Knee-jerk reaction regulations don't necessarily work as well. Whereas I think just having an open mind and open dialogue with industry and regulators is the best thing we can do. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I think ultimately, like the software is a like creates transparency, right? It it create it like eliminates fraud, and that's a long term trend that 
I think a lot of the folks that are in government actually want. Mm-hmm. This is what they geek out upon, yeah. right? It's like how do we, how do we actually eliminate the yeah the possibility of bad of bad actors? Well, let, let, let me pose a question for you. Do you think the financial crisis would have happened to the severity that it did if everything was on chain? No, I, I don't. Like I, I think like if Bitcoin existed 30 years prior, the collapse of the Soviet Union wouldn't have been as terrible for the humans there. The horrors of like like a sovereign government falling apart and like that monetary re- rebasing that happens is terrifying. You know, for myself and like me at a younger stage with like a bunch of my career still ahead, it doesn't seem as scary. But like for anyone that's retired, any anyone that's older, like the risks of that kind of level of collapse are astronomical. And yeah, Bitcoin actually is like a huge hedge against that. Like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's awesome, right? Like a that was like kind of seared into my mind as like in that I was eleven years old, like kind of growing up. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't quite facing it directly, but I do remember like my parents and my relatives having to go through that. So, um, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, similar to you, I, I'm from Mexico, and I'll tell you, no one ever thinks of storing their their hard earned savings in pesos because you've seen it, you've seen the devaluations in '94 and and continuously where people like to think in dollars, but then what happens when you see M2 and M1 supply like skyrocket? Yeah. And like I think because of Bitcoin, I think the the damage is basically buffered. Like there's a way to buffer it. Like people can take hedges or they'll 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 do it right. Like <laughs> they'll they'll figure it out. And that's a huge driver for that level of adoption, which I think is important. And will probably like keep the sovereign money afloat <laughs> longer than it should, yeah. or, or or like eliminate those huge kind of failure points. Yeah. I think at best it, it introduces a greater level of accountability in sovereign monetary policy, uh, where once you have something that's non-sovereign and interesting, it just holds people to a higher degree of accountability and, and transparency and a way of doing things that once people expect more transparency, more accountability, and then it just it's sort of like Heisenberg principle of sorts, which is like once you understand that there's a watchkeeper, someone's observing the system, and everyone's observing it, then it just in the optimist in me says it influences behavior at the nation state level in a way that perhaps a nation state ends up becoming more like a corporation because what this is all doing is shattering this notion of man-made artificial boundaries where money flows at the speed of information across the world. And once you do that and labor, right, you know, open source developers and, and these communities transcend borders and gender and any sort of biases, right? And you're really valued by your contribution. And just by your contributions and that level of meritocratic, like almost like free market where anyone can move around. Sure, you, you might be stuck in a particular geography, but I think there will be nations like Estonia and some of the Caribbean islands and some folks in Singapore that are ahead of the curve and become much, much more competitive in the same way that like companies compete for talent. I think you're going to start seeing that like shift, like a tectonic shift in how capital and labor moves at a global scale. And at best, that kind of collapses like these man-made like hegemonic forces that have existed for other reasons. But I think now my thesis is countries become more like corporations and it becomes a much more competitive market with crypto. I don't know if you heard Balaji talk about this, but I I have like a counter opinion (laughs) and this is- uh, I want to hear it. I don't know. (laughs) I, I think- 
a similar narrative is that Silicon Valley kind of lost its monopoly on intelligent folks looking for funding. And Wall Street lost its monopoly on like IPOs, right? You can now like do all of this on the internet. Yeah. Uh, you and I have never like actually shook hands, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, so you can build those relationships like over the internet and at a global level and, and do it all globally. But I think, um, I guess maybe because I have a family, I, I see that as almost freeing me to like stay in SF and invest in that city and like become actually more locally integrated. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's something like, I don't know if you heard of the term mutual aid networks, like where you have like people that have your back, mm -hmm. like in the Soviet Union, like because the overall like system sucked, like the foundational like governments, everything was so terrible that you just relied on like your local networks, like the humans around you. Um, and where you have those, I think is like really critical. It's really hard to move those. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think humans are social beings. I think that is a key distinction of humans and what makes us, we're social animals, you know? And, and I think I definitely agree with you. Like, especially in Latin America, it's so true too. Like your family, your extended family is super strong. And those bonds are what keeps you at a particular city, in a particular region. So I, I definitely agree with you. I think now you can move, you can port over that entire like nucleus, right? And just move it somewhere else, presumably. It's hard for sure, but like you, you sort of saw it in Venezuela where a lot of people just had to move and a lot of people were moving uh, with their seed phrase in, in their head with a lot of the capital. Like, let me pose another question. Like, you know, how would World War II would have shaken out if all the folks that got persecuted had the ability to store their wealth digitally? and not fire sale their entire companies, their assets, what would have that done to fund resistance to be able to move quickly? I think that's powerful. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it just wouldn't have even happened. I think that, the <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my wars are won purely on economical basis. And, and I think, you know, the ability to store meaningful sums of wealth that are outside the purview of perhaps states that try to do malicious stuff. I think it's really powerful. Again, this is like the sovereign individual at its best. You know, as it, I want to go back to something you said, which is interesting, like Balaji mentioned it, and, and I think you, you alluded to it around this idea of what's going on in San Francisco. Um, you know, Silicon Valley is a very strong community. I don't think it's going away necessarily. There's, uh, are you familiar with the like O-ring theory? It, this is like a Nobel Prize uh, two years ago, where, so the O-ring is like, will cause the Challenger accident, which you're probably familiar with, like, like, um, Feynman was the one that said like a very, the theory is as follows, a very simple, low level component in a very complex system can cause total chaos, can, can literally implode. And the O-ring was that plastic thing that held together part of the rocket and unfortunately caused a Challenger accident. And it really teaches, like, these are very complex social graphs and, and systems. To me, it's interesting because like, could San Francisco lose its place in, as, as a hub of innovation? Maybe in crypto, yes. It's possible, very possible. And I think all of this starts like these complex system and Jeffrey West kind of talks about it in, in, in scale, which is the faster a system expands, the rate of innovation, the rate of growth needs to also increase. Otherwise you're bound to collapse at some point. Like it's sort of a parabola. Like once you reach a certain point, you're too big. And then if you're not growing as fast, you collapse. And it'll be interesting. I think open source communities like probably are better suited to like avoid that trap. You know, you reach a state of like stagnation Unfortunately, some of these is San Francisco at a, at a place of like state like stagnation and people became too complacent or too elitist. Maybe um, I think certain things are not helping it, 
Um, but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, for me, that's one of the more fascinating things of this space. You probably so I mean, how many developers of Solana? Where is the team distributed? Like, where are these teams coming from? Is it do they need to fly to Palo Alto and Sand Hill Road to meet? No, <laughs> yeah, even none of our engineers are actually in SF. One, one of the last guy that was again a former Qualcomm person that was there working remotely at Qualcomm before he joined Solana is <laughs> now moving to Italy, right? Like, so we kind of like the, the world is, is really shifted in terms of where you want to live, which I think frees you up to pick the place where you want to live, regardless of job opportunities, because you now have like this global network to, to do your like business, right? Like to actually do, do that. Yeah. I mean, especially at this intersection of like AI and, and I think there'll be radical like labor shifts in the composition of the labor force. Like a lot of these things, are, fortunately, unfortunately, depending on how you want to see it, are going to be automated. And then what happens then? And I think uh, open source communities offer a window to a lot of these people, a lot, a lot of folks to say, hey, there's an opportunity here to contribute in these communities. There's a way to actually monetize it as well and get paid for your contributions uh, in a very meaningful way. And so I look at that and, and I think that's the optimist in me that says, you know, at this intersection of like, I think with COVID, people realize remote work is possible. You know, you don't have to be bound by these industrial revolution constructs of nine to five bullshitness. People think freely, maybe think better in other environments. I think collaboration and human face-to-face is super important. Conferences are important. Maybe virtual reality gets us there. But generally speaking, like, I totally agree with you. I, I, I've never met you in person. I, I, the last time I met my team was a year over a year ago. And we've gone through a lot. And I think Maybe that's what's shifting. People are critical of social media. It's like, that's not a real friendship. A digital friend, a friend of Facebook on the internet is, is not what a friend is supposed to look like. And what are, you, what are you talking about? I have a lot of friends on crypto Twitter that I share much, much more values, principles, beliefs, and I interact with them daily, perhaps more than my childhood friends. You know, so what is this construct of nationalism? Like, I don't know. I think esports, I mean, people might be more passionate about their crypto kitties and esports than they are about like their Olympic team in Tokyo Olympics. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm too crazy. Unless it's soccer, the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, yeah, like being a fan is, is like becoming, I don't know. That, that's an interesting... Uh, Side note, are, are you a fan? Are you like a fan of, of a sport or a music or like, mm-hmm. like you got, you, you gotta be like rooting for the uh, Mexican national team during the world cup, right? <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, unfortunately, like my ability to root goes down because they never get past like quarterfinals. <laughs> um, well, we're, we're coming up on the hour. Uh, I'd love to kind of hear like your last thoughts on building this like kind of like upper layer application and like for like those early founders that are thinking of jumping into the space? Yeah, um, it's super interesting. I think we're at a, at a pivotal moment of this industry where it reminds me a lot of what Google and Amazon did for the internet where people start waking up. Okay, there's a very productive ecosystem. There's killer use cases. There's real traction here. But I'm, I think for, for founders, the message would be the design space is vast super vast like uh, we we're barely scratching the surface of what is possible you know not everything is copying what exists into the traditional world at least in DeFi. like it's new primitives that are coming up like flash loans or or like at this intersection of nfts and finance and like creating transparent price discovery for liquid assets so i think it's super interesting 
the primary barometer of this space is human capital. And I think we're seeing more and more, and you in this hackathon was super interesting, like the caliber of engineers, the caliber of product folks entering the space and thinkers is is like order of magnitude of what it was in 2017. And I think that's always, for me, that's always been the leading indicator. It's like, I always take stock at something good will come out of like these open source communities where the compounding rates of innovation are like this, right? And the, in the, the sort of the, the cathedral closed source model is sort of like more static. And so I think uh, that is like super encouraging. I saw in the hackathon uh, really interesting ideas, not only like porting over what existed in in, in, in Ethereum and DeFi, but also like new primitives, which is, I guess, the question maybe for someone else in the audience or some other founders is, what are some of the use cases that haven't been built because you couldn't have like gotten them off the ground or just it was it was really challenging in an environment of well, there's there's friction. We know them in Ethereum, like there's high gas and, and there's limitations to it, which is like a growing pains of a network getting adoption. But what are some of the other use cases that are possible in an environment where, you know, it is like much faster and, and it offers different it's just a different design choice. So my view is, I think we're going back to like rounding out the discussion. There's a lot of tribalism in this space, for sure. I think that's natural. That's human instinct, nature. It appeals to how we want to affiliate ourselves with. But uh, I would just caution people to be maximalists. Like I never understood like Bitcoin maximalists. Like you realize that if you're rigid in your thinking in a space that is innovating so quickly, you're going to be left behind. And so I think the best that one can do is just be open about different things that are happening in the space. We're always, I think, ascribe to that ethos and so yeah I, i'm very very excited i think it's not win-lose i think to say that like one success of one protocol one is detrimental to the other i understand that win-lose like mentality but i think a lot of this because we're so early because we're building and, and, and unlocking so much friction that exists in finance at least in finance in, in other areas too it's mostly win-win yeah. and i think like I, I hope that more people in the community thought this way because it's always like you know, I understand that you have a vested interest in a particular project or protocol, but be a little open-minded. It's what got you here in the first place, probably, of being open-minded, being like, what is this crazy, magical internet money? Let me learn about that. And like, I think we should never lose that as a community, that ability to experiment with new things. Because the minute we lose that, then we just become exactly like the players that we're trying to disintermediate. Not because we hate them purely because there's just a, a lot of goddamn friction. I'm just fucking tired of people paying exorbitant fees and not being transparency in the system. And I think we're moving to a place that is that is brighter and offers. It's like if you open the door and you saw a way of doing things that solve a lot of the issues that are facing today in, in this world. And once you open that door, it's like, all right, balls to the wall. Like, let's go. That's awesome. Man, I don't, know, I don't know if I could have closed this better ever myself. This this is gonna be our like our 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 uh, call to action. <laughs> oh yeah, rally the troops. Let's go. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, guys, this is great. Uh, this was a one this is great. Uh, yeah, continue to continue to build, and I'm super excited to to stay on top of, of what you guys are doing, and and more projects in in DeFi and Solana, and I think. We'll definitely be looking out for that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys. Cool.